Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. It's that time of year. Cash the ticket. Jim Costa with Mike Valeni. We shift the focus from football to college hoops, getting us ready for the tournament where we're going to break down all the matchups and have an eye on some future plays, too. Search Cash the Ticket on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. When you go out to eat, how much do you tip? Is it dependent entirely on service or do you do a flat 20% or so no matter what? Dining out in a post-pandemic world has put more of a spotlight on the service industry and what counts as a fair wage, regardless of tip status. In recent years, Chicago-area McDonald's workers demanded and received a pay hike, resulting in a standard $15 an hour minimum wage. In some cases, both independent and chain restaurants have instituted surcharges, a percentage of your total check that's different from gratuity. Sometimes you'll spot them at the bottom of the menu or stated on a sign upon entry to an establishment. But is it clear where those surcharges are going? I'm Lizzie Baumgartner in for Jim Henke, and this week we'll spin multiple plates as we talk about the future of the sub-minimum wage. Let's get looped in Chicago. Before we dive in, here are some basics for understanding where the country and the city are currently in dollars and cents. The federal minimum wage as of this month stands at $7.25 per hour. That's the lowest someone can be paid legally. And on their own, states or businesses themselves can set their own minimum wage to hopefully attract more staff as long as it's higher than $7.25. For tipped workers, baristas, waitstaff, quite a large segment of the food industry, that federal minimum is $2.13 per hour. And if your tips do not cover the difference to make up for the remaining $5.12 per hour, your employer must cover that by law. Locally, the city of Chicago's rock bottom for tipped workers is higher than the national average, which is closer to $9 per hour. But if you're not reliant on an industry that's driven by tips, you might not have heard of the term sub-minimum wage. What does that mean? Well, it's the $2.13 rate per hour I just mentioned. It's below a federally agreed upon minimum, so naturally calling something sub-minimum seems like it's taking away the definition of minimum altogether. There's a portion of the Fair Labor Standards Act, the FLSA, that allows certain businesses to pay a sub-minimum wage if they're certified to do so. And while these certificates would allow employers to pay tipped workers a sub-minimum wage, it also allows them to pay students or people with disabilities similarly. Currently, seven states have outlawed a sub-minimum wage, but Illinois remains one of the remaining 43 that hasn't made that modification. 
WBBM's Craig Delamore has been following this issue for a while. Earlier this year, he spoke with two representatives on each side of the debate of whether a subminimum wage should exist in Illinois. Saru Jayarama is the president of One Fair Wage, a nonprofit that looks to change national policy to create a full federal minimum wage that includes tipped workers in hopes of bringing millions out of poverty. Santoya is the president and CEO of the Illinois Restaurant Association, who argues that requiring all establishment to pay a minimum wage, whether they be a national chain or a small mom and pop diner, would hurt an already struggling restaurant industry post-pandemic. This week, podcast producer Jim Hankey caught up with Craig to hear more about what's being said on both sides of the table. You'll also hear perspectives from Sam and Saru from their previous conversation with Craig from his podcast at issue throughout this episode. You've been covering this issue a lot. When did this idea of subminimum wage even begin? Like, how did we get to this conversation? Well, the subminimum wage is it goes back in, really in history, um, and and in fact, if you talk to the people at uh, One Fair Wage, uh, the organization that's been trying to spearhead a national effort on this, uh, it goes back to slavery times, and where that came from is that after slavery was abolished, they wanted to have some way to employ the former slaves. And what they did was create actually tips, which were, weren't a thing. The uh, former slaves didn't get paid. What they got was tips. Once you had to give people salaries, um, there was a lobby, lobbying effort by restaurateurs. The, uh, the National Restaurant Association lobbied Congress to uh, allow for a sub-minimum Right there, you're seeing the the irony of something that's a minimum wage, and you're creating a sub-minimum wage. Exactly. Yeah. But for restaurateurs who very often operate with a, a fairly thin margin, they were saying, but these are people who can make more money by their service, and we ought to be able to pay them less money. And uh, that is where it started. And then the movement to change that really has uh, has been years in the making. You know, I found a statistic in hearing your research and, and reading a bit myself, you know, back in the Obama administration, they had found 84% of a violation rate on restaurants who were not bringing tipped workers to a full minimum wage. And that's legally, you're supposed to do that. If you're a restaurateur, if you own a restaurant, you are bridging that gap between what they make off tips and then what is considered a minimum wage. Do we know if the Trump or the Biden administrations have found any changes in these numbers? I know we're going back several administrations talking about that shocking of a violation rate, but I just wonder what we're looking at now, if we have any of those stats. I'm not sure any administration has done much research into the violation rate itself. Uh, and probably the best uh, ind indication you're going to get, are, you know, the advocates who are pushing for it. What you are talking about is that employers are required to bring people up to the minimum wage, which means let's say you do get tips, substantial tips, but they don't quite come up to the minimum wage level. The highest you can make, it makes the minimum wage the highest that you can earn in that situation. And let's remember why we're talking about the minimum wage at all. 
because the federal minimum wage is $7.25. That is half of what the minimum wage is really here in Chicago. Nationally, it's $3, around three fifty. Right. Um, here, it's in the about $9. Uh, but that's been after pushing. So you're still talking about something less than a living wage. Right, exactly. And, and, and talk, people, you know, these people are eligible for food stamps. Yes, <laughs> yes. And that, that leads me to my next question, actually, which was, you know, when I go out to eat, I admit that when I'm picking up food or picking up a coffee somewhere, it's not dawning on me in that moment that servers could be potentially living below the poverty line. Uh, in talking with Saru, is that a lot of what one fair wage is bringing to public attention? Is that the people that you encounter every day uh, at your, you know, neighborhood pizza joint or, um, you know, big coffee chain, they're living below the poverty line a lot of these times. And that is indeed one of the, uh, one of the talking points, uh, for, uh, Saru Jayaraman, who is the president of one fair wage. He goes around the country pushing this. The truth is that the overwhelming majority of these workers are women, still disproportionately women of color, highest rates of single mothers of any occupation, highest rates of both poverty and sexual harassment of any industry. These are mostly single moms working in very casual restaurants and dive bars across Chicago, Illinois, and the nation. As it turns out, when you pay a woman a full minimum wage, she doesn't have to put up with as much from customers. She can count on a wage from her boss, like every other worker in every other industry. You know, let's take the flip side. There were some people you were going to talk about, uh, uh, people who might qualify for unemployment, but then if they get more money, they may go over the threshold. I'm sure there are a lot of people who uh, worry about that. No, you're absolutely right. And I can put myself in the shoes of a restaurant owner as well, uh, in the sense that we we often think uh, think of tips even now in 2023 as cash, but that's not necessarily the case. You know, you're paying with a credit card or debit card or something like that, and um, it's all very confusing as to how those get divvied up. If there's a, a big pooling system, you know, restaurants tend to do, okay, we're going to put all the tips into one big bucket, so to speak, and split them evenly about people. I can, uh, amongst their staff, I can see, uh, how there would be positives and negatives to that potentially with each thing we try to solve and address. There's probably another aspect that we're not thinking of, I think. We need to look at the other side, too. I had a friend who was in the, the restaurant business. And besides the fact that working in restaurants and owning them you, you, is a 24-hour-a-day <laughs> job, um, her margins were really, really thin. And she eventually went out of business. Uh, and that happens to a lot of uh, restaurants. And during COVID, that was a major issue. We lost, what, 20% of our restaurants, maybe mm -hmm. more. Uh, so it is a financial issue. Uh, but, you know, is it surmountable? Um, in some ways, yes. The, the head of the Illinois Restaurant Association, Sam Toya, you know, when I talked with him about this, he talked about the financial hardships. Employers always must make up the difference between the tip wage and the minimum wage if the tips during a shift don't bridge that gap. So we don't think it is a good idea to eliminate the tip credit, but we are pragmatic and we are listening. Small and independently owned restaurants and the workers are the backbones of the Chicago economy. Restaurants are the soul of every neighborhood here in the city of Chicago. These small businesses are right now in a very 
fragile state of recovery as they try to rebuild from years of financial distress following the pandemic. So any kind of legislation uh, will have a profound impact on these businesses and the future of the restaurant industry for many years to come. I mean, how many restaurants do we go to after COVID where they either were closed because they didn't have enough people to serve or they were talking about, we're going to open shorter hours. Um, please pardon the delays that you're going to have because we don't have enough people. McDonald's, when confronted with their staff shortages, you know, after fighting for a, a, a wage increase at McDonald's, they boosted their salaries to attract more people. So, you know, there are various entities that are going to be able to handle it in various ways. When we come back, we'll hear about a way that those who dine around Chicagoland keep tabs on restaurant surcharges. Stay tuned. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Surcharges at restaurants aren't new. Perhaps you've received one on a bill when dining out with a group of six or more, and when the check comes at the end of the meal, you see a percentage charge. It's become more common in a post-pandemic world, with food service establishments attempting to come back to pre-pandemic financial footing. Lately, local consumers have been keeping track of this practice in a big way. Over on the Chicago thread of Reddit, Users started and maintain a living Google Sheets document that notes Chicago restaurants that are supposedly tacking on a surcharge. The percentages range anywhere from 3 to sometimes 20% of your total bill. And when possible, notes are given on how or whether the surcharge was communicated and what it goes towards. Sometimes it's to offset increased costs of things beyond labor equity, such as to cover the increased cost of goods that the restaurant has incurred from suppliers. Other times there seems to be no reason given, or statements like environmental surcharge are listed, which seems pretty vague. Fair warning, we have not reached out as of this recording to any restaurants named on this document to confirm these surcharges, and the document itself is crowdsourced. However, it goes to show that diners who are frequenting Chicago restaurants are taking notes. Back with Craig Delamore, Jim points out a quote from Saru, who discussed what occurred with restaurant staff who returned to work, but also had to ensure COVID protocols in an effort to just stay open. They found tips had gone way down because sales went down, harassment way up. We already had the highest rates of harassment. When they were asked to enforce COVID protocols on the same people from whom they had to get tips, they started leaving en masse. 1.2 million workers have left this industry. Of those who remain, 60%, more than half say they're leaving, and 80% say the only thing that would make me come back to this industry is a full livable wage with tips on top. So in response, we've tracked over 200 restaurants in Illinois, 120 in Chicago alone, that have voluntarily moved from paying a sub-minimum wage to paying 15, 18, 20, 25. Those restaurants are thriving. You see a unionization move 
run starting to uh, flow across the restaurant industry now. Uh, you know, your 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 Starbucks, uh, you know, may one day uh, have a slowdown or something like that, or close because the employees decided not to come in one day. That's the kind of thing, the kind of pressures that we're under. Recently, our podcast team dove deep into the rise of unions and the patterns in history, which caused them to pop up more. Check out that story over on the Looped In feed after this episode. Nationwide, though, workers have walked out of their stores or even pivoted to other non-service industry roles that sometimes pay more. You know, if laws are made nationwide about this issue, is the assumption then that at least some of these millions that walked out of the restaurant industry since the pandemic would return. I mean, a lot of people's lives have changed forever. I think that's what Saru is getting at, is that let's have everybody on the same playing field and see what happens. As long as you have a divided Congress, as long as you have lobbying by business associations, it's going to be harder to do on a national level. It is easier to do it in some place like Chicago. Now, Chicago wouldn't be the first to... Uh, to abandon the sub-minimum wage. Uh, it would be one of the biggest, but it it has a chance of happening here. The new mayor is for this. Um, and don't forget, even the last administration, and it was under Lori Lightfoot that we made it up to $15 an hour. So this has been a movement happening in this direction anyway. Yeah, and there are states that they've abolished the subminimum wage. I think there's seven yeah. of them, correct? Um, California jumps out as one. That makes sense to me because their restaurant industry and and everything, uh, I could see that happening. But then seeing a state like Alaska on on that is is pretty amazing because you you think it's very remote, very is like not going to be that much to uh, to deal with there. And uh, yeah, that's just interesting too to see them at on that list of saying, no, we're gonna you know, do away with subminimum wage. It's interesting. Yeah, this is one of those uh, issues where there are so many moving parts that it's hard to make blanket statements about what's going on um, because it could be as different as you could have two restaurants a block away from each other uh, looking at different dynamics. Sam said something I thought was uh, kind of amusing during the conversation. You had asked him about coming to the bargaining table and his quote was, uh, well, I'd rather be at the table than on the menu, which I thought yeah. was pretty, pretty good. Uh, you know, because the state restaurant association has to look out for all restaurants from, as we mentioned, small diners to huge chains. Um, what is he viewing as, as fair? Um, is it current rates as they stand or in listening, which he said, he mentions quite a bit on the, your interview with him saying we're open to listening. Um, is there some leeway here, uh, that could maybe lead to a compromise of sorts? What? The compromise will probably be is phase in time. In other words, how long the restaurants have to build up to it. And right now is for something like two years. And he's talking about something like five. And that's really where I think they're going to come together. Got it. That makes sense. It could all just boil down to time. Um, if a server is noticing that their restaurant isn't meeting that bridge of, of sub-minimum wage and tips to bring them to the minimum wage, what can be done? Is there an organization that handles those sorts of complaints? Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, at, at the city level, uh, that is the uh, um, 
um, Office of uh, Business Affairs and Consumer Protection, you can report it to them. And, and they are the ones who monitor and enforce the laws in, in restaurants, uh, among other places. We just had a cost of living adjustment go into effect on July 1st, I believe. Um, that as the state unemployment hovers around 4% currently, where do you see this going over the remainder of the year? And does Mayor Johnson step in at any point between the two sides to try to bring his clout to an agreement of sorts, I wonder? I think he will step in to make sure that the proposed, whatever is the agreed proposal, or if not agreed, then whatever is the uh, the reform proposal will be the one to be voted on and likely passed in the city council. And do remember that there are a number of restaurants even now uh, that pay over the minimum wage. Uh, so it's not that they're all that way. Uh, and I, I'm talking about even the, among the big restaurants. And, and this is a topic where if you go out to eat or pick up a coffee at all, this does affect everyone you encounter from owners to wait staff. So um, I'm glad we could break down some of this today. And I thank you as always for joining me, Craig. This has been great. It's been my pleasure. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted by me, Lizzie Baumgartner, and produced and edited by myself and Jim Hankey. You can subscribe to the program on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow us on social media at WBBM Podcast. We'll keep you looped in again right here next week. See you then. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. We all agree that reducing carbon emissions is a good thing. And once again, Toyota is leading the way. We hear a lot about fully electric vehicles, and Toyota has them with more on the way. But we also know a BEV is not for everyone, whether it's because of cost, range, or concern about finding a charging station when you need it. Plus, the raw materials used to manufacture batteries are limited. Enter Beyond Zero, Toyota's vision for a carbon-neutral future in vehicles, and in manufacturing plants, too, in the years ahead. The materials used to make just one long-range battery for an EV could be used to make batteries for six plug-in hybrids or 90 gas-electric hybrids. That's why Toyota's position today is electrified diversified, empowering you to choose how to reduce your own carbon footprint with the vehicle that's right for you. A hybrid, plug-in hybrid, or battery EV. So shop, learn more, and get details at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Toyota, let's go places. It's that time of year. Cash the ticket. Jim Costa with Mike Valeni. We shift the focus from football to college hoops, getting us ready for the tournament where we're going to break down all the matchups and have an eye on some future plays too. Search Cash the Ticket on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.